0: So good to see you here this morning, and I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to Psalm 79, Psalm 79. And if you're using one of the Bibles uh, in the chair that you'll find there around you or in the pew, you'll find our passage on page 490, page 490 and 491. I'm I'm pleased to announce this morning as well, there'll be more about this later on in the service, that uh, we're going to be starting a season of prayer and fasting for our church, And uh, as we've been going through this series in the Psalms, what we're going to do is as we look at one of the Psalms on a Sunday, then that following Thursday, uh, we'll ask that you take time during lunch uh, to skip the lunch hour and to use that time uh, to be in the Word and in prayer and uh, reflect more deeply on the Psalm that we've considered the Sunday previous and to pray through that Psalm. And uh, we want to enter into a time this summer in June and July as we seek the Lord in fasting and prayer. And uh, so it's with that spirit that we come to the psalm this morning, Psalm 79. And uh, I'll read it in its entirety, and then we'll look and see what God has to say to us from His Word. So, Psalm 79, a psalm of Asaph. O oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance, they have defiled your holy temple, they have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beast of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord? Will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out Your anger on the nations that do not know You and on the kingdoms that do not call upon Your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let Your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of Your name. Deliver us. And atone for our sins for Your name's sake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of Your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before You according to Your great power. Preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors the taunts with which they have taunted You, O Lord. But we, Your people, the sheep of Your pasture, will give thanks to You forever. From generation to generation, we will recount Your praise. Amen. This is God's Word. Let's pray one more time. Father, we again come before You and ask for Your grace and help. We humble ourselves before You. And we pray that You would teach us now from Your Word. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, one of the themes that we saw in the songs this morning that we were singing is the theme of loss, the theme of suffering, theme of need. I wonder, have you ever experienced such loss in your life that you've been so distraught, so dismayed, so devastated that you didn't know how or even what to pray? The Psalms are a collection of prayers. They're a collection of songs. And one of the great benefits of the Psalms is that the Psalms give expression, they give words to our experiences, in particular our experiences with God. And so there are times in life, and I'm sure that each of us have experienced these seasons and times in life where we are so overcome with joy that we don't have words to express it. And there are seasons and times in life where we are so overcome with sorrow and with despair that we find ourselves speechless. And the Psalms give us in those moments, in those seasons, the Psalms give us words to pray. They put expression, words to our experiences when we ourselves can't find the words to express what we're experiencing. So I've entitled our message this morning A Prayer for a Time of Devastation. A Prayer for a Time of Devastation. And I want us to look at our psalm in two parts. First we'll consider a time of devastation and then we'll consider a prayer. And so let's look, first of all, at this point, a time of devastation. This really sets the historical context for our psalm. Look there in verse 1 through 4 and we read these words. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beast of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, not mocked and derided by those around us. So what we see here in these opening verses of Psalm 79 is that the psalmist is describing the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And we know this historical event from 586 B.C., so almost 600 years before Jesus was born. And during this time, Babylon came into the city of Jerusalem, attacked the city of Jerusalem, and utterly and completely destroyed the city. It is not an exaggeration to say that Jerusalem was utterly devastated. The Scriptures actually record for us how the wall around Jerusalem was breached, how the temple was destroyed, how the king... In Jerusalem at that time, King Zedekiah was chased down, captured, his sons were slaughtered before him, then they put out King Zedekiah's eyes and they led him into exile. The rest of the city, many of the people were killed, the ones who were left over, many were exiled and just a few inhabitants were left in the city to tend to a city that had completely been razed to the ground. And here in this psalm, the psalmist is record, He's reflecting upon those events, and the psalmist here laments in these verses the devastation that has come upon the city. And we see in verse 1 that the devastation has included the temple. He says, O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your temple. The devastation has also included the city as a whole, the city of Jerusalem. In verse 1 he says, they have laid Jerusalem in ruins. And then there's a particular emphasis in this psalm upon the devastation that has come upon the people. The people of God who have been humiliated, who have been shamed, who have been murdered, who have been displaced. In verse 2 he says, They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beast of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. And so as we read this psalm, we enter into a strange and disturbing world of war and death and sorrow and suffering. The psalmist here really is describing a war zone. And so as we read this psalm, we wonder to ourselves, as we seek even to make personal application to our own lives, what is it that we can compare in our lives to the reality that's being described here in this psalm. And honestly, I would have to say, I'm not really sure. I am thankful that for most of us, the experience that is being described here in this psalm is utterly unfamiliar to us. We personally, in our own experience and in our own lives, have never experienced suffering and loss at this level. But even though in some ways we cannot relate to the extremity of the loss being described here, we should still be thankful that we find this psalm in the Bible for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons why we should be thankful that Psalm 79 is in the Bible is because although many of us cannot relate to the experience being described here, there are many in the world today who can. In a sinful and broken world, many people in the world today would say that this is their reality. And if you just want one example of that, Google Syrian conflict. And you'll know what I'm talking about. And it's encouraging to know that even in the most extreme circumstances of suffering, that God has a word for those who suffer. Suffer in ways that we can't imagine. Another reason why we should be thankful that this psalm is in the Bible is because although we might not be able to relate exactly with the experiences of this psalm, when we see that God speaks so powerfully and clearly and directly to those who suffer in the extreme, we can be confident, we can be sure that God surely has a Word for us in our own suffering. That God and His Word is surely sufficient for us when we go through our various trials and difficulties in life. Whether it's losing our car keys... Or our car breaks down. Or school is overwhelming. Or more seriously, when our child is rebellious. Or when we lose our job. Or when we get bad news from the doctor. God has a word for us. God speaks in our suffering. And it's in those times that we wonder, how are we in the midst of loss, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of suffering, how are we to respond to God? How are we to think about God? How are we to relate to God? How are we to pray? Or even can we pray? What are we to say? And the psalmist helps us. The psalmist gives expression to our sorrow and to our struggle. The psalmist provides words for a faith that is shaken, but is nonetheless resolute. Let's turn now and consider the prayer. So first of all, we've seen a time of devastation. Secondly, we want to consider the prayer that is offered in this time of devastation. This is found in verses 5 to 13. Let me read them for us one more time. There in verse 5, the psalmist says, How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought... Very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of Your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for Your name's sake. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of Your servants be among the nations before, your, before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before You according to Your great power. Preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors the taunts with which they have taunted You, O Lord. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. Now, as we look at this prayer, I want us to notice that there are four petitions, four things that the psalmist asks for in this context of suffering and devastation. The first thing that the psalmist asks for in this prayer is he asks for answers. He asks for answers. In Psalm 79, verse 5, He says, how long, O Lord? It's interesting that the psalmist here recognizes in these verses that the devastation that has come upon Jerusalem is the result of the people's sin and result of their rebellion. You see it there in verse 5. He says, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? And so a little bit of a backstory here. With Israel... In particular, Judah and the city of Jerusalem. The devastation that had come upon them was the result of their sin. We have this recorded in the Bible for us. A long history of their rebellion against God. They had consistently worshipped false gods and rejected God. They had rejected God's ways. They had rejected His word. They had rejected His prophets. And God had come to them over and over and over again and called them to repent. And they refused to do so and so this devastation that is coming upon the city of jerusalem is the result of centuries of rebellion against god you know when difficulty befalls us and i should make this clear it is not always it is not always god's discipline or judgment for particular sins in our lives but in this case in psalm 79 it clearly was And we do recognize that even in our own lives, that there are times where we experience difficulty or we experience hardship as a result of our sin, as a direct result of our sin. Perhaps we experience a broken relationship due to some enslavement or addiction that we have. Perhaps we lose a job or maybe even experience criminal charges because we've been dishonest or we've stolen. Maybe we've experienced financial ruin because of excessive spending habits. We experience consequences that come as a direct result of our failures in our sin. We recognize that not only is this the case for ourselves individually, but this can also be the case for the people of God collectively as it is here in Psalm 79. Sometimes the people of God experience loss and suffering as a direct result of their sin. You know, I became the pastor of Berea Baptist Church in 2002. I was 27 years old and just graduated from seminary. When I came to the church and became the pastor there, just prior to me coming, the church had split three times in just a few months. Due to internal conflict, the church went from about 100 125 in attendance to about 25 in attendance. The church was in significant debt. They had a blank foundation out in front of their church where they had tried to build a sanctuary but because of the internal conflict a number of people had left they didn't have the financial resources to complete the project and so the blank foundation out front stood as a monument to the internal conflict that existed in the church and, you know I, I i wish i could say that when i became the pastor of that church 27 years old that all the conflict went away we all got along and everything was wonderful but that wasn't the case The church struggled for years after that to get back on its feet. You see, the people of God oftentimes experience suffering, hardship, difficulty because of our own personal sin. Perhaps you've been in a church split before. Perhaps you've experienced a situation like that before. And you've you've experienced the hardship, the difficulty, the confusion that comes as a result of being in an experience like that. And in those times we might wonder, how can we pray? Can we even pray? If we're experiencing these consequences as a direct result of our sin, will God even hear our prayers? My friends, it's encouraging to see that the psalmist here finds himself in a time of loss, of devastation. He knows that the experiences he's having are a direct result of the sin of him and his people. And yet he prays. He prays. And the first thing he prays here, the first thing that the psalmist is eager to know is how long will this discipline, how long will this judgment last? How long, oh Lord? The suffering that you've experienced in your own life, the trials, the difficulties, whether it's a, the direct result of your own personal sin or whether it's not, whether it's just simply the reality of living in a broken and broken. Fallen world that you experience various trials and difficulties, all of us, when we experience suffering, when we experience difficulty, all of us are inclined and prompt to ask, How long, O oh Lord? You know, that prayer is often offered, that cry of suffering is uttered over 20 times in the Psalms How long, O oh Lord? In Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, we learn that those who are martyred for the Lord Jesus Christ, those who were faithful to Jesus, even unto death, stand before the throne of God and they cry out to God, How long, O Lord? They cry out with a a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before You will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? And here's the thing. In Revelation, as the martyrs cry out before the throne of God, how long, O Lord? They're not actually given an answer. And oftentimes when we cry out to the Lord, how long, O Lord? We are not given an answer. The psalmist here, there's no indication that he's given an answer, that that the trial is going to last just this long and then it'll be over. But nonetheless, even when we are not given an answer, it is oftentimes still helpful to ask in fact god invites us to ask in in, in psalm, in psalm verse 3 we read or i'm sorry 62 verse 8 we read trust in him trust in god at all times o people here it is pour out your hearts before him god is a refuge for us and the psalmist is teaching us here that part of trusting God is entrusting Him with our confusion, with our wonder, with our, 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 our inability to figure things out. Pour it all out before Him. Oh God, how long? God knows the pain and the sorrow we experience. And God knows that oftentimes a particular trial is not so difficult because of its severity, but because of its longevity. Not because it's so hard, but because it's so long. It seems like it'll never end. It seems like there's no end in sight. And God sympathizes with our cry when we cry out, How long, O Lord? We also need to remember that although it may seem like it at the time that there is no end in sight, our trials, if we trust in God, will truly come to an end. For those who look to God in faith, there will be a day of deliverance. In fact, one day we will confess with the psalmist in Psalm 30, verse 11, You have turned my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. But until that day, it is not wrong to pray and to cry out, O Lord, how long? The second thing that the psalmist prays in this time of devastation, he prays for answers. He also prays for forgiveness. We see it there in verse 8 and 9. Notice in verse 8 that the psalmist acknowledges that he and his people have been brought low. They have been humbled. We are brought very low, the psalmist says in verse 8. And the reality is that when we are humbled, when we are brought low by the various trials and difficulties of life, oftentimes it reveals hidden and neglected sins in our lives. Things that before... We were comfortable to just look over. And as Jerusalem is laid waste, and as they experience the discipline of the Lord, those sins come to the surface. And we see that the psalmist here confesses before the Lord both generational sin as well as personal sin. Notice in verse 8, he confesses generational sin. Verse 8 reads, Do not remember against us our former iniquities. If you have an English Standard Version Bible, which I'm reading from, you can look at the note down at the bottom of the page, and you'll notice that the verse could be translated this way. Do not remember against us the iniquities of former generations. The New International Version translates it this way. Do not hold against us the sins of past generations. The King James Version translates it this way, do not remember the iniquities of our forefathers against us. And so here the psalmist is recognizing that there are sins, there, are, there is unfaithfulness in that, that takes place in generations prior to us, that take place in such a way that it can affect us in the present. That the sins and unfaithfulness of our forefathers has present consequences. And the psalmist here seeks God's mercy for generations of wickedness that had preceded Him but now affect Him and His people. Not only that though, the psalmist not only confesses generational sin, the psalmist confesses personal sin. Look there in verse 9, he says, deliver us and atone for our sins. So he says us. He's speaking about his present generation. Atone for our sins. So whereas the forefathers... Their forefathers, and we think about this in terms of Israel's history, was surely guilty and in part to blame for the consequences that they are experiencing now. The present generation is not blameless. And he acknowledges his sin, the sin of his people before God. And he prays, atone, atone for our sins. That word atone is actually used over a hundred times in the Old Testament. And we know that in the Old Testament, the people atoned for their sins by offering an animal sacrifice. And symbolically, what is happening in that moment is that the sins of the people are being transferred to the animal so that the animal suffers in their place, suffers the judgment, the condemnation they deserve, dies in their place so that they may not have to. The psalmist here, as they experience this devastation as a result of their sin, the psalmist is essentially crying out and he's praying, Oh Lord, atone for our sins, for they are too much for us to bear. And my friends, that is the cry of every true repentant sinner atone for our sins, for they are too much to bear. And we know that the Lord finally and ultimately answered the prayer of every desperate sinner when He sent the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the Lord Jesus laid down His life as a perfect sacrifice, giving Himself in our place for us. And He suffered the judgment, the condemnation, the death that we deserve so that our sins could be atoned for, forgiven, covered, erased, forever. You see, the temptation for all of us, when those sins start to come to the surface and we see them clearly for what they are, the temptation for all of us is to hide them. To excuse them. To justify them. To make excuses for them. But oh my friends, understand, we don't have to make excuses. We don't have to hide. We don't have to justify our wrongdoing. The Lord is bringing those sins to the surface not to condemn us, but to draw us closer into His love and into His glory. And He has provided a perfect sacrifice for those sins. So we don't have to hide them. We can put them front and center. We can confess them before the Lord sure that He has offered a perfect sacrifice in His Son, the Lord Jesus, so that all those sins would be covered. So that all those sins would be atoned for. The psalmist prays, and he prays for answers. The psalmist prays, and he prays for forgiveness. And then third, the psalmist prays, and he prays for help. Look there in verses eight to 10, the psalmist prays these words: "Help us. Help us," in verse nine. And then a little further down in verse 9, deliver us. Now, I still, and I think I've made this point before, but I still find this so striking that even though Jerusalem's suffering is clearly the result of her own rebellion and sin, the psalmist is so bold as to pray that God would deliver them and save them from their present circumstances. And the psalmist's expectation is that God will, in fact, hear and deliver. And notice, as the psalmist offers this prayer of help, as he cries out for deliverance, notice to what the psalmist appeals to. Look there in verse 8. Help us, O God, of our salvation. Here it is. For the glory of your name. Then... Deliver us and atone for our sins, here it is, for your namesake. And this is, he's saying it again, just in a different way, in the very next statement. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Do you see what the psalmist is appealing to? He's appealing to the glory of God's name. He's saying, listen, what are the nations going to say about you, God? What will they say about you and your love and your commitment to us, the covenant that you have made with us? For your glory, for your namesake, deliver us and save us. Now, the psalmist here is actually praying like Moses prayed for the people of Israel when they sinned against God in the wilderness. You might remember the story. Moses went up to Mount Sinai and he was meeting with God. And while Moses was in while Moses was gone, the people, they built uh, um, an image for themselves, a, a, a golden image of a golden calf. They erected this image and they began to worship it and they worshiped this false God. And when Moses came down from the mountain, God was angry. He was furious with the people of God and he was going to wipe them all out. He was going to start over with Moses. And Moses intercedes on their behalf. And in Exodus chapter 32, verses 11 and 12, we read these words. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does Your wrath burn hot against Your people, whom You have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Here it is. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent God did bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? And then Moses prays, turn from your burning anger and relent from the disaster against your people. Do you see how Moses is praying? God, what will the nation say? What about your glory? What about your name? Don't forsake your name. Don't forsake your goodness and your glory and your love. But have mercy on us. And God relented and He showed mercy. But it's interesting, Moses' prayer stands in stark contrast to the prayer of another significant leader in the history of Israel. It's Eli. Maybe you've heard of Eli. Eli served as a priest in the nation of Israel. He had two sons who served as priests alongside him. And Eli was godly, but his two sons were wicked. And a word comes to Samuel, who was a young prophet, And Samuel gives this word to Eli that because of his son's wickedness and blasphemy against God, that God's judgment is going to come upon the house of Eli. And we read Eli's response in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 18. Eli gets this word of judgment from the prophet Samuel and Eli says, It is the Lord, let him do what seems good to him. Now we might assume that that is an honorable response. We might assume that that is a response of faith and submission to God's will. But when we contrast it with the prayer of Moses, when we contrast it with the prayer of the psalmist here, we come to a different conclusion. What if Eli had been so bold as Moses was? What if Eli had been so bold as the psalmist is here? that even as he is experiencing the consequences of his sin, he would cry out to God and say, God, have mercy. Have mercy on me and my family, not because of our goodness, but because of the glory of your name. God, have mercy on us because you are a God of mercy and because our reputation now, or your reputation is forever tired with our reputation because you are our God and we are your people. Have mercy on us. What if Eli had been so bold as to pray like Moses, as to pray like the psalmist? Perhaps God would have shown mercy. So, my friends, listen. No matter where you find yourself this morning, and no matter what got you there, even if you know it's because of your own personal failures and sins, oh, my friends. If you know what those sins are, confess them honestly before the Lord and look to Jesus in faith and then pray bold prayers for mercy. Pray bold prayers for God's mercy and grace, for the glory of His name. Not because you are good, but so that God's glory might be made known in your life through His mercy. And then hold on. Cling to God. His deliverance and salvation might not look exactly the way you want it to. Or He may surprise you with the sweetness of His deliverance. But either way, seek and pray that His name would be glorified as He pours out mercy on your life. The fourth and final thing that the psalmist prays here, he prays for hope, he prays for forgiveness, he prays for help. Fourth, he prays for justice. This is found in verses 6 and 7 and also verses 10 through 12. You see there in verse 6 that the psalmist prays that God's anger would be poured out on the ungodly nations that have destroyed and pillaged Jerusalem. And there's clearly here in the psalm a sense of retribution, A sense of just retribution. Notice in verse 4, you'll see a a link here between these verses. In verse 4, the psalmist says, We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. But then skip down to verse 12 and we see the same theme here. In verse 12 he says, Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. In other words, the enemies of God have taunted us. They have taunted you, Lord. Now, let your justice be done. May, may the taunts that they have directed towards you and towards us, may they turn back on them. Now, in the coming weeks, we're actually going to be looking at a psalm in which the entire focus of the psalm is this idea of justice. But just simply to state here this morning, The God of the Bible, yes, is a God of love, He is a God of grace, but He is also a God of justice. And in these verses what we see is that the psalmist is appealing to the justice of God. And we all know that there is evil in this world of such a type that all our hearts naturally and viscerally cry out for justice. And if God were not to act in justice, then His claims to be a God of love would be meaningless and fall flat. So that we would rightly object, God, how in the world can you see that and turn a blind eye? But The psalmist here reminds us that God never turns a blind eye. But God is a God of justice. And even though the Israelites are experiencing God's discipline as Jerusalem is destroyed, the Babylonians, they too will experience God's judgment for their sin. So, this is the prayer it's a prayer for answers, it's a prayer for forgiveness, it's a prayer for help, it's a prayer for justice. There's one final verse, verse 13. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. Now, it is noteworthy that this psalm, a psalm that is written in a time of devastation, ends on a note of praise. But what I want to point out in particular here is that in the midst of devastation and destruction, the psalmist here possesses a confident sense of identity. Notice there in verse thirteen, but we your people, the sheep of your pasture. So so this is wonderful. And you I don't think I don't think we can understand the rest of the psalm unless we get this. that even in a time of devastation, even in a time of discipline, even in a time of judgment, the psalmist is able to say, we are yours. We are your sheep. And you are our shepherd. And this is our hope. In fact, as we look at, we've been in this this series in Psalms, as we look at the last three Psalms that we've looked at, all of them actually end on this note. Let me, let me show you this just quickly. Psalm 77, go back. to Psalms. Psalm 77. This is a Psalm where we are called to remember God in a time of distress and trouble. And Psalm 77 ends with this verse in Psalm 77 verse 20. You led your people like a flock. So God is the shepherd, the people are His sheep. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. The next psalm, Psalm 78, is a psalm about us passing on our knowledge and love of God to our children. And in Psalm 78, the psalmist ends this way. Psalm 78, verse 70. It says, God chose His David, his servant, And took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people, Israel his inheritance, with upright heart he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. So God now is shepherding, God is the shepherd and he's shepherding his people through David. And now Psalm 79... A psalm about a prayer in time of devastation. The psalm ends, Psalm 79, verse 13, with these words. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. Do you see the theme? Do you see the theme here that's reiterated again and again and again? We are yours. We are your sheep, and you are our shepherd. And so, whether we find ourselves in a time of trouble or distress, Psalm 77, or whether we're fumbling through trying to communicate our faith to our children, Psalm 78, or whether we are in time of utter devastation, Psalm 79, we are yours. And that is our hope. And you are our shepherd. That is our hope. And so it begs the question, do you know That you are His. Listen, if you don't know that, if you don't have a confident sense of your identity, that you belong to God, you will not pray like this. When times of distress and devastation come, you will not cry out to God like this. Rather, you will turn inward. You will try to find answers in yourself or in others rather than finding answers in God and in His Word and in His people. But if you are confident that you are His, if you know that you are His, this will be as natural to you as a child crying out to her father or as a sheep resting secure in the arms of their shepherd. Do you know that you are His? You can know. Through faith in Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, who laid down his life for his sheep. Trust him. Yield to him. And in all times, he will be your shepherd. In all times, you can say, I am yours. You are mine. I am your sheep. And you are my shepherd. Let's pray. Oh God, there is nothing trite or superficial about Your Word. And we thank You, Lord, that Your Word speaks to the deepest experiences of our life. Father, some of us are here this morning and, I mean, we think things couldn't be better. Life is going great. But surely there are some here this morning who feel like everything is coming unraveled. Oh, Father, we thank You for psalms like this. And Lord, I pray that even now, that for those who don't even have words to express maybe the sorrow that they are feeling, I pray, Father, that in this psalm they would find words, words to cry out to You for hope, for deliverance, for salvation, for forgiveness. Father, help us to each know that we are truly Yours and we thank You that through the sacrifice of Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, through faith in Him, we can know that we are Yours. We pray that as we come to Your table now and we take the bread and as we take the cup, that we would be reminded of the sacrifice of Jesus which has forever secured our place with You. And it's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.